Hello, I'm Peter Ayers, and you're listening to Stages, the podcast that converses World with the World War II gave us writing for Godot and Oklahoma. Without the arts, we are diminished. We had the kind of creative freedom. I was, I was on television as a child, and then I had I was in Cotty's happy hour. She leaned across to me and she said, one day, you know, you'll be doing that. Mind-boggling. They were even lined with purple leather. Uh, I went to the ABC and auditioned. I was so fit at the end of that, you could have ended me in the Melbourne Cup. I And I still firmly believe that great work can be made in small places. If nobody's going to respect your talent, you've got to respect it. I hope I've been entertaining, that's all. Well, that's very kind of you, Peter. But you are a friend. <laughs> and as are you. Yeah, it's a date. <laughs> it's a date. Hello, I'm Peter Ayers and welcome to episode 190 of the Stages podcast. A theatre foyer would not be complete without the presence of Michelle Guthrie. She has worked in the entertainment industry for over 30 years and has been present at a vast array of entertainments as a performer, publicist or producer. Since her youth, she has been an avid participant in any experience involving the business called show. She was always destined to contribute to the making of theatre. She has promoted product and performers such as Cats, The Phantom of the Opera, Barry Humphreys and The Dalai Lama. She's played rock and roll stages in bands and a tour of the Rocky Horror Show. And Michelle has produced 21 musicals since introducing neglected musicals to Sydney audiences and managed the occasional triumph taking Calamity Jane on a national tour. It is a wealth of opportunity that has garnered tremendous experience and placed Michelle at the top of her game. This year, she oversees two more additions to the neglected musical's repertoire and graces many more foyers. Stages was delighted to learn more and to be engaged by the effervescent and highly informed Michelle Guthrie. What's going now? So whenever we start, we'll start. Okay. Well, like, don't you ask me a question or something? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You've never been stuck for a word, Michelle Guthrie. No, never. Um, Welcome to Stages. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's nice. And you're an avid listener, I believe. Yep, absolutely. Kept you company during the, the COVID lockdown? Oh, yeah, on my daily walks. Walking is a daily routine for you? Oh, gosh, I wish. Um, yeah, when I can. Sometimes there's there's too much to do, but I, I really... Like, it was every day during COVID for hours, but, yeah, I'd like to do it a lot more. A lot of your work is at nights, Less so now. Uh, I mean, it definitely was before. A lot of it now is during the day, which is great when you've got a kid. So, yeah, I try. I try to only be at something two nights a week. Often it's three, though. But in in past years, it's oh, every night. Yeah, yeah. yeah. In your lives as publicist and performer, now producer, all of those p words. <laughs> all those p words. I've thought of it before. I'm sure we could add to that. Like? I don't know. Perfectionist? Oh, no, not that. I think I can be, but no, not no. I don't know. Let's uh, talk about a, a show that you recently produced, Well-Behaved Women. Yes. I don't think there has ever been such a, a time of perfect synchron- synchronicity in uh, in Australia than to see a show with this this perfectly... Constructed show by Carmel Dean, and um, 
and the women's movement, the Me Too movement, and and um, the, the debates about consent and all sorts of things. Well, that was her inspiration, um, the Me Too movement, and it's what what she's created is really quite remarkable. And what we did with it here was turn it into a theatrical show. Because she'd written it as a song cycle, hadn't she? Yeah, and it still is a song cycle. But in New York, it was presented at Joe's Pub, where you showcase and present things. And uh, she spoke about the songs in between from the piano. Uh, And what we wanted to do with it here was to make it more theatrical, turn it into a show, uh, not have, you know, nine women singing 16 songs, but four women on stage playing all the, the different roles, so to speak, um, and and make it an experience with the band on stage, and I think that's what we did. But it was an entirely female company too, which I found really exciting, and the band and the crew. Yes, that was obviously deliberate. Absolutely, and and a little bit trickier than I thought, because um, we did end up having one man. Oh, where was the man? Sound design. Right. Yeah, all the female da- sound designers were very much snapped up, um, and but look. David did a great job and he was fine in with all of us. It was, but it was, it was absolutely joyous to work on that show. Uh, all, all the women together all the time. Um, yeah, it was really a wonderful, wonderful couple of weeks because we only had a week's rehearsal. We only did a week's worth of shows um, and it was just amazing. Who were the women who inspired you, Michelle? Oh, gosh. <sighs> I've put you on the spot a bit. I, well, you I don't had want to no sound idea naff. that was coming. No, no, I no. You won't sound naff. Oh, no, I will. I will. I can only think of the so, people that... So you're that, editing yourself. I am I, editing myself. This is your job, as a, this is your role as a publicist coming through, I think. Oh, yeah, no, that's, and that does do that, which is awful. I can think of lots of women that have done things where I've gone, oh, my God, I'll never do that. I'll never act like that. So that's the opposite of being inspired. <laughs> um, I, okay, I'll do, I'll do the sound, but I am surrounded by women who inspire me every day in every single part of my life, from the women that stand next to me at the school drop-off gate to the the women that I participate in my many committees with um, and the girlfriends that I've had for decades and decades that have gone through what they have gone and have listened to me and all of my stuff. I, I have surrounded myself with many, many women that inspire me. Have you thought of going into politics? God, no. That's the other P. Ah, politics. Well, it's funny, um, we're moving into a new council area soon. <laughs> I was complaining about something and my husband said, oh, you could always, you know, go for council. And I'm like, never, never in a million years. Doesn't appeal? No. Well, I, I've dealt with a lot of councils with different um, jobs over the years and I just think it's it's too tricky. Mm. It's really tricky. The, and really, really crazy long hours. I don't know how they do it. How long have you been in show business now? I don't know if I've ever not been in show business. Um, I think my first paid job would have been 15 or 16, I think. And what were you doing? Uh, what I guess my first unpaid job was dancing at the Opera House. Um, oh, at 16, I was doing club shows. I did um, the, the club show circuit. would have been highly illegal. Uh, I was also dancing in a cage um, at a club. 
uh, and I remember that was $10 a night. Uh, and it's going to make me sound like 112 But, yeah, I do, like I was, was working in a shop during the day and working the clubs at night by 16. Yeah. Oh, and doing lots of amateur theatre when I could too. Okay. Yeah. What sort of shows were we doing in the amateur scene? Oh, gosh. Merrily We're All Along? Yes. Yeah. Oh, you knew about that one. Yeah. Um, was that the, the premiere production yes, in Australia? Yes, it was. Yeah. It, and it was the original version of the show. What gets done now is very different to yes. what we did. Yeah, yeah. It's gone um, through various um, yeah. incarnations. And that was directed by... John Milson. You can tell me. Yeah, great. John Milson. And um, <laughs> <laughs> You gave us your Mary Magdalene in Superstar. Oh, yes. That was at Glen Street Theatre. Yes, and Angela Bishop was in that. Oh, was she? Showbiz yes. reporter. Yes. I'd met Angela before that, though, because that's right. We danced on films together. That was around 16, 17 as well. The other thing that took up my days was dancing on films back in the old 10BA days. And Angela was there next to me for nearly all of them. Who was filming you? What, what were the films? Um, we were both in a film called... Um, the Boy You Had Everything with Diane Salento and her son Jason in the lead. All right, so these are feature films and oh, you're, yeah. you're dancing extras. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, actually, Angela was a stand-in for Diane Salento. Right. I think back in those days you weren't cast as a stand-in. It was, hey, you, come and stand over here, put this hat on. <laughs> but I remember her doing that and thinking, oh, wow, Angela's getting to be a stand-in. No allowance or anything. Just Gosh, no. Put the hat on. So, so McCallum Musical Society on the mm-hmm. North Shore. Mm-hmm. What is it about community theatre which sort of uh, gives somebody some nice grounding to launch a career? Well, there wasn't anywhere else to go back then as well. There wasn't um, anywhere to go and study other than NIDA and the ensemble. But my parents did amateur shows, so that's what introduced me to musicals, apart from what was on telly on a Saturday afternoon. And... so, you know, family. I, I, my family life at home was not great and I craved family and like-minded people and I started doing amateur shows at 15 and would get people to pick me up and drop me off until I got a car and I would do one musical society rehearsals on Mondays and Wednesday nights and another one on Tuesdays and Thursday nights. And You can do that when you're young, can't you? Yes. <laughs> With rehearsals starting at eight pm and finishing at eleven, and then yes, and work, work and working during the day and working in a restaurant at night on the weekends or doing the club shows, you know, it was just constant. But I loved it, and I loved I loved hearing everybody's stories. You know, when they'd be, you know, there'd always be a tea break, and you'd get a cup of tea and have an Arnott's biscuit, and somebody'd always have something to say about that show they did way back when. And also, too, amateur theatre in those days was littered with people that had actually worked, people that had been in J.C. Williamson's in the chorus and and now they were doing a lead or directing. or So I loved all of that. Do you have a collection of cast recordings at home? I did. Yeah. Um, I don't anymore, no. I don't even have a record player anymore. So what were you listening to as a kid? What would you put on your, the My Fair Lady or...? I yes, Sweet my parents Charity. had a few, but but really it was the movies that were on telly. Sweet Charity was on about every six months. Um, I suppose yes, t- television's changed completely too. Yeah. But every Sunday afternoon, you look forward to the matinee movie, which would generally be an MGM musical. But often they'd be three in a row, and you'd just sit there and watch them all. 
So yeah, that was that was mainly where I found out about musicals. I think we had Oklahoma because my parents did Oklahoma, um, but I don't think we had much else. I think it was just really watching the movies on telly. Was there ever a, a fascination with plays or just always musicals? Predominantly musicals. Um, you know, I went to dancing school. I thought if I could spend my life singing and dancing, that would be great. But like a lot of people that end up, you know, that are in this business, they start with that and then find the other things they do within the business. But, yeah, I mean, I n- never really aspired to be that kind of actress. I just wanted to be in shows. Never auditioned for a play. Just wanted to be in musicals. Oh, musicals. If you weren't working in the theatre, what do you think you might be doing? That's just kind of impossible. Yeah, to think about. No. Yeah. Uh, no, I mean, I, I have obviously had other jobs over the years because you need to take whatever job you can get when you're younger just to work. But no, I really can't. I mean, I, I worked in different sales jobs and I um, worked for in charities for the Cancer Council, running events and things like that for years and years. Um, but that only made me realise even more that that's not where I belonged. I belonged in this business we call show. And so I called my way back to it. I really wasn't gone for very long, but at the time it felt like an eternity. So uh, after secondary school, do you go off to university or that you're just starting, you're starting jobs where you can get them? No, I, I was um, working in a shop during the day, right. doing amateur musical society stuff at night and um, singing and dancing in clubs. I used to do the Tony Priest musicals as well. Do you know about those? No, no. Oh, I can't, I can't believe it. that somebody hasn't come on your show to talk, talk about the about Tiny it. Priest musical. So they this were is the first. They were in the clubs, um, and they—I think they were abridged. I'm not really sure, but you know, a lot of people, were, like Donna Lee, would have been in them. Um, and you know, I get a phone call from Tony, and he said, "Oh, so you've got—you um, you were in Carousel or something?" And I said, "Yeah, yeah." So have you still got that outfit? Yeah, yeah. Okay, do you think you could come down to St George Lee's Club this afternoon and the girls will show you what to do? We're doing Oklahoma. Do you know Oklahoma? Yeah, I do, I do. No, I know Oklahoma. Um, okay, all right, well, if you could be here at one. And I got there with my frocks and then somebody did my makeup and somebody did my hair and I think it was 17. And then Shirley Detmar, who's now Shirley McGrath, who works for Frosty, um, was like okay this is um, when I look at you you say um who you take into the box social lorry and this is what we're going to do and we're going to kick here and we're going to dip there and on Oklahoma we're going to sing this I'm like okay yes Shirley um and you just go on and do the show with no rehearsal just this little bit in the wings (laughs) just a one-off performance or they had a season um I think I mean, I only ever did a few, but it w- but they stayed with me. I think that they would just do one, like on a Sunday afternoon. There must have been some on a Saturday night. It's kind of it's a long time ago. Long time ago. It's hard to remember. But uh, Tony Priest had a massive musical circuit that went round the clubs. Somebody's going to ring you now and tell you all the rest of it that I don't know. Fill in the gaps. Well, they can ring away. I can't take the call exactly at the moment. Perhaps <laughs> <laughs> I'll just have these spasmodic calls over the next couple of months. Um, but but you establish yourself as a performer, don't you? You you did the Rocky Horror Show. Mm-hmm. I I was um I did Rocky Horror for like three years, I think. In the end, a couple of different tours of it. 
Um, and Reg was, uh, had he returned to play Frank Inferno? No, no, so this was after Reg had stopped. We had Daniel Abenero. Oh, okay. And uh, then on the last tour, it was Simon Westaway, who'd been Brad, was um, now Frank and Furter. Um, and that that was about the time that Wilton Morley fell over, his company, um, and he ran screaming from the building, which was the country at the time. Uh, Blood Brothers had just closed. Um, we were in New Zealand touring, and uh, it all just fell over. So he would have given up the rights at that point, but before that, he was just every year trotting the show out to make money. Um, it was a bit of a cash cow, wasn't it, Rocky? Like, oh, licensed to print money. Yeah, mm. absolutely. I, I mean, I don't know the fate of that show now. Um, if it ever did come back, which I can't imagine that it wouldn't, I'd like to see it go back to those original roots of a rock and roll show with handheld mics with cords and that real grungy rock and roll show that it was originally... Yes, it lost be. a lot of its charm in, in productions in recent years, didn't it? It just yeah. became too clean or pristine. And its well, it became musical theatre, and it definitely yes. wasn't that when no, I did it. Yeah. And I'm sure the productions I did weren't as great as the productions that came before it, but um, it was the last of that kind of presentation of that show. Well, we hear of those, those original productions in London or, or Australia with Harry M, and... In a grungy old, dirty, flea-bitten cinema. I mean, it must have been wonderful. Yeah, well, it felt like that when I was doing it. But, um, yeah, the Valhalla is where they did it in Sydney. I'm not sure where it was in Melbourne. And it was upstairs at the Royal Court in London. Um, and that, that's when a lot of those things became, you know, were born, really, because they were allowed to get away with that stuff. They could be in a venue where the fire exits couldn't open and things like that. So they could actually take their time to... Create the show. A time before WHS. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I, I did I did Rocky Horror. I was doing theatre restaurants. Uh, I was spraying people with perfume in David Jones. Um, and then I did Dames at Sea, Ruby in Dames at Sea at the Opera House for Peter Williams. And um, that was the last big thing I did because he came into the, dress, the dressing room at Interval in the last week of the show and said, oh, I want, you, I want you to stop all of this. And I really did not know what he was talking about. Um, and he, he said, come and talk to me in the office next week. So I did. I presumed he wanted me to be in another show. Um, but, but apparently, all through rehearsals, I'd been telling him how to sell the show. And he said, that's what you should do. That's what you should be doing for me and come and do that. And I thought, well, this isn't going to happen again. No one's going to pluck me off the stage and and put me in the position of helping to create shows and work on it that way. So I took it. Were you con- being content being a performer? Yeah. Was it easy to give that away? No, it wasn't. Um, I mean, it's the best thing I ever did, but it was, it was a difficult decision at the time um, because I felt that I had more to do. I, I think... All performers think that, you know, I haven't done my Miss Julie kind of thing. Um, but I knew I wouldn't have an opportunity like this again. It was would be ridiculous to say no to him um, and what his plans were. So I, I said yes, and it's the best thing I ever did. The universe coming calling and... Um, well, yeah. Happy accidents and right place, right time. Absolutely. And I, I think, you know, being able to know what those moments are when they come along, I think... That's that's a gift. 
Um, I think a lot of people, when they're offered things, they don't realise what they're being offered. They're not, they don't see that, yes, this is actually the golden ticket. You think you're chasing a golden ticket, but this is actually the golden ticket. And you watch people knock things back and turn things down to chase things that aren't really ever going to happen for them. And I look back to moments like that in my life and, and go, no, I knew to take it. it. You know, it wasn't it wasn't easy, but it really wasn't that difficult. You know, I knew it was a, a great opportunity and so I took it. But you're obviously exhibiting um, particular talents, which he recognises. Where do you think that's come from, that, that sort of inherent knowledge of how to sell a shark? Um, well, I don't know. <laughs> You can ask me lots of things I'm going to say I don't know to. Um, I'm just forcing you to reflect, (laughs) Michelle. You've just taken it as a given in past years. Well, I have. You know, uh, a friend of mine described me as a shark because I just keep moving forward. Um, So I look COVID. I got to reflect a bit then. I guess we all did. But um, it is very instinctive to me how to sell a show and... um, what audiences might want of course you know everybody can get that wrong and if everybody knew exactly how to do that then we'd all be rich um but selling it's still selling but being a publicist is selling um and i had had a pretty huge sales background you know lots of telemarketing lots of you know standing in the middle of a shopping center and having to go up to people and talk them into you know whatever the hell i was selling that week, there was lots and lots of that kind of sales work in my 20s. And yes, and you, you look at, at you, your uh, teenage years in amateur theatre, you know, you're working in community uh, groups, you're working in clubs at a very young age, you're, you're observing what audiences respond to, you're in clubs, so, so you're garnering all sorts of knowledge which you're going to use later on. Well, and also, you know, when little old ladies or just people that if they weren't drunk and they'd come up and talk to me about stuff um i would listen to them you know it's i think speaking of drunk people i mean i spent years in cover bands as well in my 20s and um you'd always talk to people and they'd say i love that song and i go okay why do you love that song you know that song that we actually do twice a night because people love it um and they you know would talk to you about why they loved it and why they were there and what was so good about being in that space on a Friday night and how they come every week and all that kind of stuff. Um, back when I could, you know, stand around and listen to those people in those crowded rooms. <laughs> uh, well, can we, can we talk about that, listening to people in those crowded rooms? Because mm. uh, you have um, uh, a hearing impairment. Is mm-hmm. that right? Is that mm-hmm. correct terminology? Well, that's the terminology I prefer yeah, to yeah. use. I'm hearing impaired. Yeah, yeah. So is that in recent years or have you always had that? Uh, well, I think if if you speak to anybody that's worked with me over the last 20 or 30 years, they'll say I've always had it. But I've worn hearing aids for 16 years. I don't have them in all the time. Um, my lip reading skills are, are pretty good. That must be handy in foyers. Uh, it can be. Yeah. It's, it's really handy when you watch awards programs and <laughs> they flick to the audience and you go, oh, no. Um, <laughs> but, no, it is handy. Um but, yeah, no, he- hearing impairment, it, it can be tricky in a foyer. But, you know, you adapt and watch people. And I tell people, I say, I'm sorry, I, I really can't hear you. And then, you know, in certain environments, the hearing aids are useless. So, you know, they go, I can't hear you. You'll have to call me tomorrow. 
You were telling me something off mic about uh, you used to describe yourself as hard of hearing. Mm. And people would react very differently. Yes, quite awfully, actually. They Something about that um, made people want to make fun and make all the obvious jokes and kind of ridicule you. And it was really out of their own embarrassment and insecurity um, and a lack of understanding. But I found the minute I switched to saying I'm hearing impaired, which I am, um, people's attitude, they just go, oh, okay, and then... They would change the way they were to try. I mean, obviously, people get louder, which isn't doesn't help when you're hearing impaired. Um, but you know, just the attitude changed, and so I thought, well, no, this is because it was it wasn't nice when you know somebody would decide in front of people to try and make fun of you because it's not something to make fun of. Mm. It just is, yeah. and I think we all have to get used to it because I think many, many more of us are going to be hearing impaired over the next. 10 years? Well, there's much more visibility now, isn't mm. there? Yeah, we're mm. more aware of it. And, and people working in the industry? Yes. Well, I mean, it, there was no, um, you know, earplugs and things like that when you performed back in the day. There was no sense of damage that you could have been doing to your ears. You know, talk- so do you think that you might have incurred some of that damage working in bands? And, in I, think, I think it's all of the above because obviously I've spent time looking into it and I've, you know, gone to different doctors and things but um it it, there is a line of it in my family so there'd be some hereditary stuff there um also some nerve damage from some medication as a kid um you know even working in rocky horror we um the flash pots used to go off right next to our heads and you know i've got a picture of me backstage with my fingers in my ear so we used to do that to try and you know keep away from that and then yeah they're singing in bands I've also read that living on busy roads can also you know have issues so I think all of the above really so general manager of Peter and Alan Williams presents Mm. for close to a decade um no I I didn't work for Peter and Alan for 10 years I'm not really sure how long it was um I I think probably 18 months a year, something like that. But it's a nice apprenticeship to, oh, uh, it was to great. start your career. It was fantastic. So were you doing shows like Asking an Old Lace, Swell Party? That was all before me. Right. Um, I was there towards the end, so Oscar's turn to sing. You were put on stage one night, I weren't you? Was. Another <laughs> one of those situations where I'm just sitting at my desk doing my work and Peter Williams, you know, predominantly lived in Queensland and would only come down when he needed to. And he rang me and said, are we having a good day? And, if you, you know, do you sort those ladies out with that group booking for Wednesday? And yes, all that stuff. And he said, um, have you still got those frocks from when you were singing on the showboat? And I go, yeah, like I'd ever get rid of a frock. Um, he said, well, could you go home and grab them and meet Lindsay Partridge backstage at three o'clock and learn all of uh, Natalie Moscow's songs and a few of Jackie Reese's songs and go on? Sure. Okay. Did you ask why? Well, I just presumed they were off. I knew there were no covers. So um, I was just like, you know, driving home, trying to go through the lyrics in my head to You Light Up My Life. And um, the last time I saw Paris, I think, and um, gosh, I can't even remember now, but there was three or four songs I had to kind of learn and go on for in my frocks from the showboat. That show is spoken about a lot. It's uh, it's one of those uh, famous, infamous shows. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they had a stellar cast. Mm-hmm. 
but perhaps wasn't the best artistic success? Well, I mean, of course, I have a very different viewpoint from the... It feels like 150 women that say that they were in that show. <laughs> um, so there were two seasons of this show, and... Um, it was so successful he brought it back and there was a lot of different actresses in the, the second one and, and none of them were happy. Um, the first cast, the second cast, um, they, they, none of them were happy. It was one of the most unhappy companies that, and they really weren't happy when I went on because they wanted understudies. They wanted to be able to go off and that wasn't the parameters under which Peter Williams, and, Peter Williams could work. Um, so, you know, it... They were unbelievably unhappy and it all fell over quite spectacularly um, and um, the whole company closed down during the last run of it. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. And it, but it was a really good show. The premise was all, all, the songs, all those songs being nominated for... Or no, one, that had won. That had won. All, and, and there was also a, a song that Liza had sung at the Oscars that was added to it as an opening number, I think. Which was its Oscar's turn, turn to sing. Um, maybe it was the closing, can't remember. But it was a really good show. It was what it was. Was it as good as it could have been? Probably not. But the audiences loved it and it looked beautiful um, in the Playhouse at the Opera House. And so it's interesting how it's gone on into folklore as being this disaster. And I've worked on disasters. This wasn't a disaster. <laughs> what are you learning in that first gig? As general manager? I also ran the actors agency that oh. he had yeah oh, okay. so I mean I feel like in my memory that's that was the bulk of my day. Um, was that Australian creative management? Yeah yeah, yeah. and uh, there was a lot of people up on the wall that weren't even there anymore that weren't They'd gone on to other representation and I'd call them and say, come in, have a chat, let's talk about your career. And uh, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not with them anymore. I'm with I someone. Left so six months ago. Yeah. Um, so there was a lot of that to sift through and then just a lot of dead wood that were never going to, never had worked, were never going to work. So a lot of it was just sifting through all of that. But then a lot, a lot of the general management stuff was what you would expect for a theatre company of that size. It was all about house seats and group bookings and, um, you know, te technical calls going down. I mean, the back before there was any kind of security really at the Opera House, I could drive my car onto the concourse and underneath the stairs and there was a parking spot for me opposite stage door. Rockstar, Could you imagine right? doing that now? No. Then I'd have to go in and take actual, literal, hard tickets in. I was only five at the time. Of course you were. Of course you were. <laughs> so what follows Peter Williams? Is that Harry M? Um, no. Um, not too long. I went and worked for a couple of different charities, including the Cancer Council, where I looked after predominantly Australia's biggest tea and coffee morning, um, which was hadn't really started yet. There was just this idea from the UK. So Australia's Big Morning Tea. Wasn't well, the, yes, yeah. it was. But when it first started, it was Australia's Biggest Tea and Coffee Morning. Right. And, and now it's Australia's Biggest Morning Tea. And so the first year um, it raised about 60000 And in the, my time there, I got it to raise over $2 million. Um, And really, that was just using kind of a group booking kind of mentality with getting um, lots of people out there with community groups. Um to have these events to raise money. Um, so I was there for quite a few years and it was 
while I was there that and I was I was still running a couple of people um, as as managing them from when um, Australian Creative Management fell over I took a few people with me and said no don't worry about it I'll look after you Um, and we're still putting them up for auditions and using the fax machine at work and mobile phone and all that kind of stuff and I got a phone call one day um, it was a Sunday afternoon and um, and I answered the phone and said, Harry Miller's my name. I understand you're running an agency out of your briefcase on the back seat of your car. I think you'd better come and talk to me. So I did. And then I started working for Harry. That's Mr. Easy. Miller, as we used to say. You called him Mr. Mr. Miller, oh, did you? Always Mr. Yeah. Miller, yeah. Right. So there's the universe looking after you again. Harry's obviously <laughs> yes. heard of you somehow. Yes. You'd, you'd be mad to say no. No, exactly. Mad to say no. I mean, and... I couldn't believe it. I, it was the universe saying, "Yep, you've got to, you've got to go back to this." And I had been trying to get out of the cancer council. Sorry, cancer council. Um, but yes, that was it. Was great to get that opportunity to go back and back into show business. And what a great way to do it, working for Harry. My gosh, the stuff that happened while I was there. Is there a book in you, Michelle? There is. I don't know if the um, non-disclosure agreement expires. I'll have to find out. Um, but, yeah, no, a lot happened. A lot happened while I was there. I mean, a lot of people are still definitely then and especially now, I guess, confused about what Harry actually did. Um, I went in there hoping he would still produce shows and he talked about it, but it didn't. It never happened again. Uh, but I did believe it was going to. Um, but he predominantly sold stories. He managed people and he sold stories. And a big part of what I did was the selling of the stories. And, and stories they were. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, selling stories to, to media? Yeah. Print TV and TV? Yeah. So, so you were starting to form a life as a publicist, I guess. Yes. I mean, a lot of people thought he was a publicist, oh. but that's really not what we were or what we did. We managed people, Mr. 25%. You had a stable of clients and it was your job to find them work and it wasn't acting work. It was um, to represent different brands and products and um, and also to find events that could be capitalised on, you know, literally combing the paper, looking for things that might be something that could be sold and turned into something. And then there was also people that just turned up and would have initial meetings with him and then you'd be sent off with them to get their story, formalise a story, come back to him with what you think you could do with it and um, and then sell it. A lot of great talent has started in the offices of Harry M. I mean, yeah. Michael Castle. And... Michael Castle was the work experience boy when, when I was there. When you were there, there really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Harry knew how to pick him because he could tell that Michael was going to go on to be huge. And you could. He was just, he was only 17, I think, maybe 18. Um and he he just had this determination and presence and intuition yeah and just yeah. like very focused and he just he knew what he was going to do and who he was going to be but yeah that that old saying be be nice to the intern because you never know exactly <laughs> yeah exactly. but yeah harry really took michael under his wing i mean he ended up working for him and yeah so when did you run away and join the circus michelle um that would have been not long after I finished working for Harry. Um, checkbook journalism was really not my style in the end. There was a, a particular 
incident that happened that I was like, I can't, I can't do this anymore. Um, and then I went for a job working for Ross Mollison when he had his marketing agency and I got the job. I think I got the job because I knew that Anyone Can Whistle only had nine performances on Broadway. <laughs> so he, he was very into musicals and I could do those, say those things. So um, anyway, I got that job and it was great. It was, we, it was everything all at once. Um, we were all in there seven days a week, working all hours on many different things. And he would be flying between Melbourne and Sydney and you never knew where he was. And, you know, this was, this was at a time where so much was happening in Sydney and he was also working, I don't know whether he was running the marketing department for Fox Studios, which hadn't opened yet, um, or whether he was in it or what his role was there, I'm really not sure, but that's where he was all day. And then he'd rock into the office at 6.30 and then we'd have meetings about what else we were doing. Um, and, and so I thought it was fantastic. We were ju- it was just so fast um, and not boring. Um, and, yeah, and that's when he, I was in a meeting and he said, so we're, we're going to do this. And it was a drawing and I've got it still. Um, I don't know if anybody else does, but I've got it. It was a drawing, a cartoon of a black tent with cat's eyes on it, with Ayers Rock in the background. And he said, this is what we're going to do. And I thought, that's just ridiculous. That's never going to happen. What a stupid <laughs> thing to think. Because, you know, Ross had these big dreams and he, but it happened. It, we were all standing there with champagne in, in our hands in uh, November. So it premiered in Is Rock, did it? Cats, cats yeah, we did Alice Springs. We did Darwin and Alice Springs as like previews. Yeah. And then, yeah, November 1999, we opened at Ayers Rock. And then Grease followed, and mm-hmm. then Shout. And then Shout. So you worked on that full-time, those shows? Yeah. As publicist? Yeah. Well, about five months into the tent tour, there was, cause, and I never let anybody call it a tent when we did it. You had to call it a big top. Um, there was a massive falling out between the Ross Mollison organisation and the Really Useful organisation. And that's when I was asked to go and work for the Really Useful organisation. Um, and so, again, like, Ross is going, no, no, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. And I went, okay, but no, I'm going to go and work for the company that does musicals because that's what I want to do. Uh, and so, yes, that then went on for, I think, another year and a bit. And then we did Grease and then we did um, Shout. And in the middle of all of that... Um, the really useful company took a whole lot of Australians to China to do the music of Andrew Lloyd Webber and it was the first time something had gone into China and that was Joanne Robinson, that was huge. But they also decided to co-produce a play, which was The Graduate, which I did the publicity for. So that was The Graduate with Wendy Hughes and Mark Priestley. In We opened three weeks after September 11, um, which made it really difficult. The day we opened, the MLC Centre was on the front page of the Daily Telegraph saying that, you know, there were men of Middle Eastern persuasion mm-hmm. in the stairwells and, and taking photographs and that was it. I was like, we're done for because if people are terrified to go to that building yeah. because the American consulate's in there, then we've, we're not going to have an audience and we didn't. So it didn't sell the show? No. It had a phenomenal cast too. It did. John Waters was in it. Yeah. Tracy McFarlane. Mann, Andrew yeah. McFarlane, yeah. It was great. And and a very, very young Ben Lawson understudying Benjamin. And it's not in his CV, 
Right. So that's why I'm mentioning it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, with the, with um, the the the, tent, the big top shows, mm. obviously the the original intention was to to visit those small rural towns. I imagine that didn't have performing arts centres. Perhaps. Mm. How do you go with with something like as simple as ticketing? I mean, the shows coming to town. I remember growing up in a, in a little country town, and the circus would come to town. And you'd get your tickets at the local news agent or milk bar or, or something. Who's doing all of that? Are you doing that? Well, yeah, I mean, me and Carmen Pavlovic, who was um, general manager, um, and and we had different marketing people coming and going throughout that show. I feel like a lot of it was just me and Carmen um, in Avis rented cars, travelling around, staying at Flag Inns because they were a sponsor. Um, but yes, you'd go to a town, you'd have a look at whether you felt that they could deal with... They didn't have to deal with eight shows or seven shows, but if they could deal with five. I mean, it was a 2,000-seat big top. And you look at, you know, to see... There were things like if there were four $2 shops. Remember $2 shops? Yeah. If there was four $2 shops in the main drag, then that's that's too many. That means people don't really have enough money. If you're there on a pension day and they're queuing up outside the ATMs, okay, that's probably not a good sign. And then the final thing was um, the cuts of meat at the butchers. Go and have a look at the butchers. And I got that from um, somebody I knew that worked in politics that said the best way to find out about a town's affordability was the cuts of meat. They're not going to cut the expensive meat if no one's buying it. So if there was lots of sausages and lots of minced meat, and then you're like, okay, what's near here? What's, what, what else can we do? And most of the time we got it right. A few times we got it wrong. Um, but, you know, it was... Then and then it was meeting with the Chamber of Commerce and meeting with the council and talking to the local news agency to see if they would take on a Ticketek machine. And then Ticketek would follow up and put the send somebody out. And I mean, we had our own box office and the majority of the tickets would sell once the tent went up. But you always had to have people doing stuff in advance. So we'd go there to suss out the town... Then once the deal was done, we'd go back and put it on sale. And often that was just in a town hall with a video machine and sometimes just me on my own getting up and talking about it, sticking the VHS in with the the showreel and then saying, so, you know, we're we're taking tickets now. And I would literally sit there with a pad and a pen from Ticketek and take people's bookings and rip it off and put it there and do the next one and then get up at three o'clock in the morning and get on a flight and fly to the next town and do the whole thing again. Wow. Sometimes with Tim and we get to a town and Tim McFarlane would say, okay, I think that's a good restaurant. And I go, okay, great, we'll go there, book that. And then sometimes with Kerry, when we're doing Greece, Bernadette Hayes and I, Mackay, um, and then a lot with Carmen. Hi-ho, the glamorous life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, look, it was good. There were many moments that weren't glamorous. You know, you learnt things like you turn up at the airport at 4 o'clock in the morning and you didn't put your rental car key in the drop box until you were sure that flight was there and it was going to take off. Because sometimes they'd say, oh, the flight's delayed for eight hours and you, wouldn't have, you couldn't go anywhere because you'd drop the key. So you'd hang on to the key until you were boarding the plane. There we go. As she opens her um, mineral water. Yes, not champagne, sorry. Cuts of meat and rental car keys, the <laughs> secrets of the travelling publicists. Okay, di- I digress. 
You want to know about the small towns and how much they love the show and I talk about cuts of me. No, I love it, I love it. So uh, when do you go out and become your own woman as a publicist? You know, you start your own company, which is called Michelle Guthrie... Uh, MGM, it was MGM. called then, um, because I already had um, registered Michelle Guthrie Management um, when Peter Williams closed down and I, I took on those 10 clients to keep them. Um, and actually, Kevin Goldsby. Do you remember Kevin Goldsby? He no. was part of the Naked Vicar show, and he was predominantly a voiceover person at that time. And um, you know, I knew him because I knew his daughter. And he turned up and said, "I know what you should call yourself. You should call yourself MGM Management." And he even drew a little logo and everything. And I was like, "Wow, okay, with, great." With the searchlight or no, no, no. no it was just a square box. Right. And I was like, "Okay, great." Um, so I already had that registered. So how how that happened was I was working for really useful. And uh, the shout wasn't working really well. And then um, Rodney Rigby came and said, so I want you to come and do shows for me at Jacobson's. And that's still fine. You can still work for Tim, but you're going to have to go out on your own. And he basically said, this is what you're going to do. And I went, okay. And it was terrifying. Um, And I still worked out of what were the Ross Mollison offices at um, Double Bay that were just, you know, in the same space that's really useful and um then just worked for both for a while and then i was just then i was really out on my own <laughs> you've um uh, just listening to your conversation uh, michael castle harry m uh, ross mollison tim mcfarlane carmen pavlovic uh, rodney rigby rigby you're working kevin with, jacobson <laughs> you're working with these giants of impresarios in the country that will they become or still are? Mm. Yes, but I, 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 you know, when you you ask me thing about <laughs> before not looking and being introspective, retrospective, introspective, I, I can't even speak anymore. It's the mineral water. Um, I I do know that part of the the key to my success at that time was honesty. Um, these were people that were surrounded by people not being honest with them. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I could back it up. This will work because, that won't work because. I think the ticket prices can be this because. Um, and I think that that had a lot to do with it. I mean, yeah, I, I delivered, absolutely delivered. Um, and that had a lot to do with it too. But it, you learn so much from those people. I mean, I don't know how that will go now, you know, especially your Michael Edgeleys and, and Kevin Jacobsons and people like that, how they would actually survive currently um i think it's probably good they've retired i mean you know cowboys is not really the right word but the rules are very different now to when they were around neglected musicals Mm -hmm. that's a fabulous project which must be about 10 years old now is it 11 11 11 Mm. so obviously uh prompted by your enormous passion for musicals Mm mm-hmm how did it all start? I was living in London and I walked past the Covent Garden Performing Arts Museum. Is that what it was yep, called? Yeah, that's what it yep. And they said uh, there was a sign saying five pounds to come and watch Green Willow. Uh, and I thought, what the hell is Green Willow? The Anthony Perkins musical. Yeah. yeah. So I went in and it was just this small room, uh, a small stage about... Never, never will I marry. Yes. Yeah. And it was a foot, there was a, a, the stage was a foot and a half up and there was an upright piano and there was people standing there holding like clip 
bored things. Um, and they did the show. And I thought, oh, we should do this at home. Why aren't we doing this? They're just doing it to do it. And so 20 years later, <laughs> um, I was like, okay, now it's time. They, I, they, and I, I say this in my little speech at the one-day rehearsal for Neglected to the cast that I, one of the reasons why I started it was I felt at that time there wasn't really a lot of joy in our industry. I feel there is now, and I do feel the haze has had a lot to do with that. Um, but I felt that at that time there wasn't a lot of joy. And, you know, people were doing replica musicals and being told where to stand and what to say and how to move. And um, so I thought, well, okay, this is good timing. We'll do it now. And the first one we did was No Way to Treat a Lady. Um, and I'm not sure if people understand the choices actually come from the director. The director chooses the show. Um, I say yay or nay to that choice. Um, but they have to feel the passion for it and see it all in their head because of the one-day rehearsal scenario. Uh, so it's, we just did two shows and it went really well and everybody loved it. And that was back when that space was the Darlinghurst Theatre and we do it on Monday when they didn't have a show. And just with a piano? Just with a piano. But back then, just with a keyboard because the Darlinghurst didn't have a piano. Right. So it was always just a keyboard and off we go. New, New York has the Encore series, but that's a, a much bigger spectacular, isn't it? And, of course, Melbourne had the production company. Yeah, the production company started a bit simpler. But then they, you know, they like with everything, I mean, you know, neglected's gotten bigger than it was. Things grow. So they actually, I think in the end, have two weeks rehearsals. I think they, they did in the end. I'm not sure. Um, and it's a, such a shame that that's not happening down there anymore I'm sure somebody will rush in and take its place at some point so you aim to do a couple of years yes yes there's been a few years where there's been three it's really just about what availability there is with the space um I'd like I could do more but and it'd be good to um you know now they're for a whole week there's so many, like you mentioned before, off mic, uh, 70, 70s Girls 70, 70 Girls 70. Yep. And it'd be great to do that. I yep. love that show. There's great music in that show. But you, but you couldn't do a whole week probably right. of that. You know, you might need to do three or four. And there's a lot of those. And of course, uh, little gems grow out of your neglected musicals. Calamity Jane yeah. went on... Was it a national tour or certainly a tour of the uh, We call East it a national Coast? tour. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, is it, so, did you expect that that could happen, that um, a full-blown production would go out of a concert? More, so, more so in the beginning, right. but as it went on. And then, of course, you know, when we started the haze, I thought, well, it's not going to happen now because there's the haze and that's this and they're short seasons, so three to four-week seasons of the haze will go off around the world. So I really had thought, okay, well, Neglected musicals is what it is, and it won't do that. And then there was Calamity Jane. Yeah. And the rest is history. Yeah. Yeah. We did, um, at first, we thought we'll only do a few and see how, but it sold out so quickly. I mean, Calamity Jane was one of those movies that was on all the time, so there was a certain... Well, you talk about those Sunday matinees. Yeah. Yeah, I think I must have seen it 12 times in my youth. Yeah, I, I Bill... Collins introducing it, mm. maybe a Friday night or a Saturday night as well. I mean, it was it was very popular. I mean, when we did The Neglected, you'd look around the audience and there was people mouthing along to Black Hills of Dakota. You know, that's not even one of the most 
popular songs in the show. And you go, oh, my God, okay, this is going to be huge. This is going to be big. And then, of course, really, Richard, Carol, like, we've got to do it. And I'm like, ah, are you sure? I don't know. I know they love it now, but will they love it then? He's like, no, we've got to do it. We've got to do it. So we did. Uh, Could we possibly then see Well-Behaved Women again? Yes, we definitely will be seeing Well Behaved Women again. Oh, it deserves to be seen again and again by a much bigger audience. Yes, there is interest, nothing I can talk about at the moment, but really serious interest, which is great, Um, and working on all that right now. So I'm hoping that soon we'll be able to say, but yes, definitely coming back. So what's happening this year with neglected musicals? Well, uh, in a couple of weeks, we have um, Nice Work If You Can Get It, which is a Gershwin musical, more or less based on a lot of those Gershwin musicals from the early 30s, whose scripts you really can't get away with now. Things like OK um, and uh, I think Let Them Eat Cake. I think some of the songs are from that. Uh, And, you know, we thought something bright. As Cameron Mitchell was picking, you know, he's directing and choreographing, so he picked the show. And it's, it's, it's got such a good score, obviously, but just a really good, fun plot line. The women are leading the stories in it. So um, that just seemed the perfect one to do. It's, um, I think there's some tickets left. Right. Um, it's at the Hayes, of course. So, yes. so listeners can jump online and, uh, or call the Hayes and uh, secure a ticket, hopefully, for that. And, and? 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 You're going back to Belvoir, I believe. Well, yes. I mean, we had... Um, Kind of on the day that COVID shut everything down, we had announced that we were doing Curtains, the 2007 musical, at Belvoir in this neglected format. And uh, so I don't really know whether people knew that that was going to happen because I didn't send a newsletter out. I was like, this is this is all going to really go down. And so it did, so it didn't happen. Um, but it will be happening as part of the Festival of Everything at Belvoir in September. Are we allowed to know any more about it? Like if he's directing or cast? Yes, or... Richard Carroll's directing. Right. Uh, that's it. <laughs> that's it that you can <laughs> well, there divulge isn't at the moment. Well, the, the thing with Neglected, there's no point locking too many people in early on because, you know, obviously if other work opportunities come up, they're going to take them because um, it's, you know, much longer period of time of work that they could be offered. This is only going to be, I think we're going to do three or four shows in at Belvoir because it's a bigger space. Yeah. Um, but... Yeah, that's on sale to the general public now. It was just subscription only, but now... Do, do you audition your actors or is that all... No, no. it's all the invitation. Yeah, yeah, I don't feel with this format that it's right to audition. Yeah. Um, it's a really good opportunity to use actors in roles that you would never normally see them in. Uh, you know, one of my favourite things early on was um, seeing the late, great Michael Fowles on as a villain in on the 20th century and I just thought oh this this is what you've got to do now you know all these gorgeous leading men that you do you have to be the villain you have to be the character actor you're so good at this um and after 21 neglected musicals you don't remember every single little bit um but he, he really stands out in my memory of doing such amazing performance in that show yeah, he's a lovely actor and a, and a beautiful singer and, and such a gorgeous man that's mm. uh, gone too soon. Much too soon. Yeah. So, um, thanks, Michelle. That was huh? that was good. Was that painless? Um, no. No, really? Well, no, because now I'm going to sit here and worry about all the things that I said that I shouldn't say. <laughs> and we haven't really talked about the haze. Did you? Oh. I... I'll, be, I'll be drawn and quartered. 
But you must talk about the haze then. <laughs> <laughs> As she sips on her soda. Soda. Um, the haze, mm. yes. Mm. I'm one of the founding members of the haze. Yes. I'm on the board of the haze. See, I feel like I've, I've spoken about the haze because I've um, talked to Richard yeah. Carroll on the podcast and Neil Gooding. But let's hear your story. <laughs> well, I just want to talk about our fabulous it is and how proud we all are. Yeah, as you should be. And, and you know, how much hard work it was and is still. Um, and what a fabulous job everybody's doing that's working on it, in it, around it. We have a wonderful leader in our chair, Lisa Campbell, fantastic general manager, Will Harvey. And, uh, you know, we... The, the things we have planned for what the Hayes is going to do going forward, um, you know, as as you know, we do do a lot of new Australian work, and um, we develop a lot of this new work. And one of the shows that we've been developing for the past four years is a show called Dubbo Championship Wrestling, and I'm the EP on that show, and I, I've it's very close to my heart. Um, it's just going to be the best thing ever. And Sheridan Harbridge is directing it. Sheridan Harbridge is yeah. directing it. And Joe Akari is musical supervisor. Glenn Morehouse is musical director. Um, casting it at the moment. It, it is so funny and so outrageous and so amazing. And I'm, I'm not overselling it. Everybody has to come and see the show because it, it really is going to be special. So where did you find a work like that? Well, we did have a program called New Musicals Australia, which is now Hayes Development Program. Um, and people submit, and um, myself and Neil Gooding would go through it all and um, select which ones should then go through the different stages in order to be... 20 minutes was presented. This particular one, um, these two brothers had written a couple of songs and I think there was like Act One, but maybe not quite, and they brought it to another thing we were doing called First Look, which was not, it, was the, it wasn't formal, it was not supposed to go anywhere, it was to give you encouragement to keep writing. And so they brought it in for that, and I'm, I was like, guys, you've really got to finish this, and you've got to submit it to NMA, and this really could be something, and it's going to be something. So what month? November, not on sale yet, oh, but it will be November. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll look out for that. Dubbo Championship Wrestling. Yeah. Excellent. Um, well, it's lovely, been lovely wrestling with you for this last hour, Michelle. Um, thank you. It's been lovely having you on thank the show. You. We've been talking about it for a while, so we've made it happen. Yes. All right. All the best. Thank you. You can discover more of Neglected Musicals at www.neglectedmusicals.com.au. In 2021, you can catch their upcoming performances of Nice Work If You Can Get It at the Hayes Theatre and Candor and Ebb's Curtains at Belfast Street. Let's hope too we can see a revival of the splendid Well-Behaved Women by Carmel Dean and presented by my guest today, Michelle Guthrie. Thanks, Michelle. You've been listening to Stages with Peter Ayers, produced and engineered by me. Please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. And remember to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Wooshka, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcast listening. Thanks for joining us in this episode. I'll catch you next time.